Welcome back, everybody, to Then There Were Two, a History of the World series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually by Lucas Mitchell, as always. Lucas, we have entered the Nifty 50s. Time flies, both in terms of the podcast and in the World Series, given, you know, we've been at this for almost a year now. That's crazy. That's right. We're approaching 50 episodes very quickly, which means we are approaching a year of doing this, so... I'm very excited to see what year number two, when it eventually does come up, will bring for this. So let us get into this 1950 World Series highlighted by the Philadelphia Phillies known as the Whiz Kids, which was a nickname given to them by a sports writer. They are in the World Series for the first time in 35 years because they have 14 players aged 25 or younger, four position players, and four starting pitchers under the age of 25. But it did not come easily for them. In fact, they had to fend off the defending National League champion Dodgers on the final day of the season. One game separated the teams at Ebbets Field. They were playing each other. The Phillies had a seven-game lead nine days before. But then Kurt Simmons, their ace lefty, has 17-8 record. He was lost to military duty on September 10th, and they had injuries to Bubba Church, who was a rookie hurler, as was Bob Miller, which meant that manager Eddie Sawyer had to give the ball to his righty Robin Roberts on the final day for his third start in five days. And the Dodgers had a chance to win in the bottom of the ninth, but Roberts got all the bases below the jam to send the game to extras in the 10th inning. Dick Sisler hits a three-run homer, and that gives the Phillies the pennant. However, there was an unlikely hero on the mound for the Phillies that year, and he actually won National League MVP, appearing in a then-Major League record 74 games was Jim Constante, and he had 22 saves as well. And here is one of the best descriptions about the 33-year-old journeyman relief pitcher, as written by Jimmy Powers. He was a scholarly, bespectacled man who looks like a Rotarian who had somehow gotten himself into a baseball uniform. And also, Del Ennis was the NL leader in RBIs with 126. So, just crazy to think how, despite having their best players overall in general being so young it was a crafty veteran who was leading this team to the pennant yeah uh, Jim Constanti throwing 152 innings in 1950 and by my count if you add in Kurt Simmons I think that ranked him fifth on the team in the amount of innings he ate only struck out 56 guys, but had a whip just a hair over one. Posted a 266 ERA. You mentioned the 22 saves easily leading the team were the stat official at the time. But yeah, I mean, a ton of youth on this group. This was a squad that hit 265 as a team. Uh, Del Ennis, the 31 home runs to lead the team. They hit 125 as a squad. Scored 722 runs. I mean, this is a pretty impressive group to give Philadelphia its first National League pennant in 35 years. And let me just go back to that pennant run once more and talking about how in such bad shape they were by the end of it. You had a catcher with a sore ankle in Andy Semenik. And you had a pinch hitter in Bill Nicholson, who was laid low by diabetes. And Willie Jones, their third baseman, was suffering from appendicitis. And to top that off, Roberts had to hurl with Don Newcomb 
for that entire game. So talk about just barely by the skin of your teeth getting to the World Series. Absolutely. And so back, though, to Kurt Simmons real quick. And this is something that in reading about this, it eats at me a little bit. So you mentioned Simmons getting called to military duty on September 10th. He was stationed at Camp Atterbury, which I am going and looking up. It was a military post licensed to and operated by the Indiana National Guard. So a little bit of a distance from Philadelphia. But Simmons had requested and was granted leave on October 4th to attend the series. But for some reason, the Phillies did not submit a request to Happy Chandler that Simmons be eligible for the series. Why wouldn't you at least try and get one of your best pitchers to pitch for you? The only thing that I can think of them doing this is because we're only five years removed from World War II, so the fact that guess. people are serving in the military is probably a greater honor still than playing baseball, which to their credit it is, but yeah, post-war fervor is still at a fever pitch at this point, I would say. Especially, too, considering the timeline we are at, you mentioned that we are just five years removed from World War II, but also earlier this summer, the Korean War had broken out. So I guess from that perspective, I guess I can kind of see it, but it's also at the same time, it kind of boggles the mind a little bit, given that he was at a stateside posting and for even a few days to be able to come back because he'd be able to pitch one maybe a couple, three tops games, you would assume, in that instance. I don't know. I'm just I'm spitballing here, but I get the other side of the argument. Switching over to the American League, the New York Yankees are back, finishing 98-56, three games ahead of the Tigers, who might have made a more interesting race, but for a season-long injury to their ace Virgil Trucks. We have nine wins from a rookie lefty by the name of Whitey Ford, who was called up in June and finished with a 9-1 record. We will see a lot more of Whitey Ford in this episode and in the near future. And we also have an MVP season from Phil Rizzuto hitting 324. And you have four Yankees hitting at least 300. They scored 914 runs, which is a mark they wouldn't reach again until 1998. And this was Joe DiMaggio's last season as an everyday player for the Yankees because, you know, he's in his mid-30s at this point. And he is on the back end of his career, clearly. And then you have some solid pitching as well. Some familiar names here. Vic Raschi, 21-8, 16-12 for Allie Reynolds, 18-8 for Eddie Lopat, 15-9 for Tommy Byrne, and the aforementioned 9-1 record for Whitey Ford. And you also might find this interesting, Lucas. This was the 17th pennant for the Yankees, and it broke the previous record of 16 pennants won by the Cubs because they won six when they were the Chicago White Stockings back in the 19th century. So this officially put the Yankees at the top of the Major League pennant list. Yeah, and you know a lot of those pennants, too, would have been prior to us beginning to look over things in the history of the podcast. So, I mean, obviously, you know, if you're a baseball fan, what the Yankees are all about. And obviously, we also know if you're a fan of baseball that there's a lot more to come. The one interesting thing that as I look at this pitching staff, I mean, you mentioned a lot of the starters. 
We talked a lot in last week's episode about Joe Page, who had been a phenomenal pitcher and basically their designated relief guy, and we saw him take the mound a ton in last week's episode when they were playing the Dodgers in the 49 World Series. But in 1950, Joe Page just absolutely fell off a cliff. I mean, he pitched a good amount early on in the season, but by the time you hit July and August, like he's finishing games in here, but he's starting to struggle a little bit more and finished the year with a 504 ERA, a 3-7 record, did record 13 saves, but obviously wasn't the same pitcher that he had been, and this would actually be his final year as a Yankee and would be out of the majors for another three years before getting a cup of coffee with the Pirates as a 36-year-old in 1954. So the relief duties went to a guy by the name of Tom Farrick. Farrick pitched in 46 games, went 9-7, and seven, recorded 11 saves, and ended up walking more guys than he struck out 29 to 26, but a 379 ERA and a whip of about one and a quarter, a little bit above that. So certainly not the effectiveness that we saw from Page last year, but this is a guy to keep an eye on here in this series for the Yankees. Now let's get into this series, which will open at Shide Park. In front of Ford Frick, Will Harridge, the NL and AL presidents respectively. Happy Chandler throws out the first pitch. And also in attendance in Philadelphia is the just-retired manager of the Philadelphia Athletics, Connie Mack, who after 53 years, 7,755 games, 3,731 of those going for wins, he has finally stepped down at the age of 88. And I just think it's so interesting how... He gets to the World Series during his last year, but it's the Crosstown team that's playing for the whole thing. I'm just impressive that he's still managing games at that age. Credit to the uh, Cornelius McGillicuddy secret Dakota ring. I have to throw that Easter egg in here one last time. So here is the problem that the Phillies faced because they were so injured and because Robin Roberts was so exhausted from pitching in that pinch clincher. Eddie Sawyer turns to Constanti for his first start in over four years. And you would think that that would spell disaster for the Phillies, but it turns into a very impressive pitching game as Constanti is going up against Rashi in this game. And we have some very interesting and even some scary moments. We mentioned the young Yankee outfielder in the last episode, Gene Woodling, he actually collided into the left field line wall when he was chasing a foul ball, but he remained in the game. You had Bobby Brown hitting a double for the first extra base hit of the series. Reshi actually reaches after a low throw by Jones at third base. Then at one point when the Yankees are on defense, you have Hank Bauer, Rob being a guy we're going to hear about a lot in this episode, Granny Hamner of a big hit. Caught the ball against the right center field wall. In the bottom of the eighth, we have a one to nothing score. The Yankees go to what's going to be a go-to strategy for them in this. Johnny Mize, who was picked up late in the 1949 season, he exits the game for defensive purposes, entering the game 
for him is Johnny Hop, and then Brown is replaced at third base by Billy Johnson, and we see Rashi completes the two-hit shutouts, and the Phillies have a chance to tie this game, but Richie Ashburn grounds out to Hop unassisted, so Hop does come in to make a defensive play, and then you have Sisler striking out swinging to end the game. So this is the 12th two-hit shutout in series history, the third straight game one two-hitter in the World Series, and the third straight one-run game one. So, I mean, do you have to buy lottery tickets now if you're making bets on game one of the World Series? If I had a nickel for each time between 1948 and 1950 that a game ended 1-0, I'd have three nickels, which isn't a lot, but it's weird that it's happened three times. Yes, and Constante, he allows only the one run on four hits in eight innings, the only run coming on a deep fly ball by Jerry Coleman that goes for a sack fly, Bobby Brown's double that we mentioned earlier that comes around to score. So very close game that is complete in two hours and 17 minutes. So not the quickest game from what we've seen, but very close, very close. That's all I can say. And a very impressive job by Constanti, who you mentioned making his first start in several years and definitely acquits himself well. It's just unfortunately he gave up the one extra base hit of the game and the Yankees were able to manufacture a run out of that and it ended up being the only run they needed because Vic Rashi was very good. He mentioned the two-hit shutout. He walked one and struck out five, faced just three batters over the minimum. So we go to game two and attendees include Cubs manager Frankie Frisch and Reds manager Luke Sewell. And Woodling leads off the game with an infield single to short the Hamner knocks down, nearly gets doubled off third after falling down between third and home, but he gets back up safely after Eddie Waitkiss has a high throw. And unfortunately for the Yankees, that stays where it is. And we have Mike Goliath scoring the first Phillies round of the series on a sacrifice fly by Ashburn. Joe DiMaggio flashes some leather as Del Ennis drives a deep one off to DiMaggio's position. And he has a nice catch to lead off the sixth inning. Just like in game one for the bottom of the eighth, Hop replaces Mize at first and Johnson replaces Brown at third. Then Ashburn leads off the eighth with a bunt single, but he promptly is forced out at second on a bunt ground out. And through eight innings, we have a one-to-one tie that holds up in the ninth inning. And then Joe DiMaggio comes up in the 10th inning to lead it off. He had failed to get the ball of the infield in his last 10 World Series plate appearances. He homers into the second deck of the left field stands, the seventh World Series home run of his career. Sisler strikes out to end the game while trying to pull back, but his bat broke the play. This was the first extra inning series game since game one in 1946 and the 23rd in series history. And I don't think it should come as any surprise that DiMaggio's home run is the biggest play as far as swinging win percentage in this entire series, according to Baseball Reference. Yeah, I'm looking at it. In terms of the in-game, it's a 33% uh, win probability swing. Got the Yankees to an 83% chance. I'd have to look a little more at the actual specifics of the play, but there's a big difference between heading to Yankee Stadium tied at one game apiece versus going, oh crap, we lost both of our games at Scheib Park. And incidentally, this uh, 
2-1 Yankee victory in 10 innings would turn out to be the last ever World Series game played at Shibe Park. Spoiler alert. So we go to Game 3, and the Phillies, like you said, have to go into Yankee Stadium down two games to nothing. But we once again get a thrilling game. Phil Rizzuto has a two-out walk. He steals second and advances to third on a wild throw from Semenik. Jerry Coleman scores Rizzuto on a single, but he's thrown out at second on a 7-6-4 relay. Then we have Ennis in the sixth inning, doubling off the right field wall on the first pitch with two outs. Then he scores on Sisler's first pitch single to left. Sisler is picked off on a throw by Barra to first after Hamner failed on a bunt attempt. So the Phillies take their first lead of the series when they go up 2-1 to one in the seventh. The Phillies, it's their turn to get some defensive replacements in there to try and protect the lead. Jackie Mayo comes in for Sisler to play left field in that eighth inning. Then the Phillies, they have had a fine pitching performance on the mound from their starting pitcher, Ken Heinzelman, and he gets the first two outs of the eighth inning, but he then walks the bases loaded, which prompts Sawyer to relieve him for Constanti, and four hits in seven two-thirds innings makes for a fine outing, and Heinzelman actually received a standing ovation at Yankee Stadium for the outing, but Brown, who is pinching for Bauer, he follows off three pitches. They hit a grounder to Hamner at short, but he boots it, and the tying run scores. So we go into the ninth inning. Tom Farrick enters in relief for Eddie Lopat after eight innings. And then Myers comes out for defensive purposes again. Collins is in there again. Hamner leads off with a double, but it could have been more had DiMaggio not caught up to the ball. It was a very nice hustle play by DiMaggio, and I saw the video for that. And Collins threw out Hamner while he was trying to score. And then, with the Phillies unable to score in the ninth inning, Russ Meyer comes in to pitch. And second baseman Jimmy Bloodworth comes into the game in that position. And in a few minutes, he's going to wish that he had not come into this game at all, Lucas. With two outs, Bloodworth is unable to handle a Woodling grounder. And Woodling beats the throw for an infield single. And then Rizzuto hits a line drive that caroms off of Bloodworth's glove. And he makes contact with Woodling as he reaches second base. And then you have Coleman walking it off on a single that falls between Mayo and Ashburn in left center field. So, talk about a string of bad luck or bad play, if you want to call it, from Jimmy Bloodworth, who was coming in for defensive purposes to try to get the game to extra innings. Instead, the ball just happens to find him, and it seems like the game always finds players like that. Maybe you should have kept uh, Putsy Caballero in the game. He had come in to pinch run for Mike Goliath in the top of the ninth inning after uh, Dick Whitman bounced into the fielder's choice that saw Hamner get thrown out at the plate. Caballero, for his part in 1950, in limited duty, had 20 chances at second base committed, just one error for a 950 fielding percentage. So maybe, maybe not. I mean, we can debate this, but end of the day, this is just kind of one of those you always talk about kind of weird things happening, and this is certainly one of them. So even though the Yankees dropped three games to nothing, they very easily could have gone either way. You have a tight pitcher's duel in game one. You have extra inning heroics from DiMaggio in game two, and then you get a walk-off in game three. And the walk-off really only happened because you managed to tie the game in the 
bottom of the eighth thanks to the combination of walking the bases loaded and then your shortstop booting the ball. So we get into game four and the attendance at Yankee Stadium, 68,098. Whitey Ford gets the start for this one. And you have Waitzkis beginning the game with a leadoff walk on a full count. And then Jones hits a ground rule double into the right field stands. But Brown throws out Waitzkis while he is trying to score. So the Phillies are frustrated early on. And the Phillies opt to send Bob Miller to the mound. And his outing is very short-lived. He faces four batters, only retires one. Constanti comes in to relieve him, which gives him 77 overall appearances on the season. The Yankees score a couple in that first inning. Ennis has an infield single down the third baseline to lead off the fourth. Hamner gets him to third on a hit and run. Semnick grounds out to Mize at first base, and then Mize throws out Ennis trying to score. But here's the funny thing about that with the double play. Semnick didn't realize that Mize made the out at first, so he continued to run until he got to third base. And first base umpire Jack O'Conlon got everything strained out to end the ending. So I guess everybody's getting confused as everybody's sensing that this series is getting close to a finish. Yeah, no, I mean, you fall behind two to nothing. You mentioned kind of the rough outing for Bob Miller not even getting out of the first. Really, when you start the game by inducing a ground out, but your second baseman, Mike Goliad, ends up booting the ball and allowing him to reach... Uh, you get a ground out to advance Woodlane, but then Yogi Berra singling him home to score the first run. That goes down as an unearned one. Berra ended up advancing all the way to third on a wild pitch by Miller before DiMaggio ends up doubling him home, and that was the point in which Constanti came in to try to limit the damage. Yogi Berra leads off the sixth inning with a home run to the lower right field stand after he works the count full and fouls off several pitches. That's the second home run in his series career. Then you have Brown tripling, which is the second triple for either team in the series. That rolls all the way towards the 407-foot sign in right center. DiMaggio, who is on base, he momentarily mixed up the signal from third base coach Frank Cressetti, whom we have mentioned before. And he starts heading back to second, but then he corrects his confusion quickly and he scores easily. The Phillies do flash a little bit of leather. Cicero makes an over-the-shoulder catch on a deep ball, hit to left by Bauer. But Brown scores on a sacrifice fly. And you can definitely tell the Yankees are going to win. This is up 5-0 going into the ninth inning. But Ennis is hit in a leg by a pitch. Uh, it's a rare anomaly for Whitey Ford. And it looks like Ford is going to go the distance. Woodling appears ready to make the final out of the series. But he momentarily loses the ball in the sun. Recovers, but then he drops the ball. In part because of the cigarette smoke haze at Yankee Stadium in the late afternoon sun. And that scores two runs. But Semenek, who had hit that ball, he only gets to first base because he had a leg injury, and Mayo ends up pinch running for him. Reynolds ends up relieving four with two outs in the ninth inning after Goliath gets a single, which brings the tying run to the plate. Ford gets a standing ovation from the crowd, and they boo Casey Stengel in protest of the move. But the veteran Reynolds strikes out Stan Lopata on a 1-2 count to end the series. The Yankees now have... 13 World Series championships out of a possible 17, the sixth time they've swept a World Series. 16 combined runs between the teams, which is the fewest in series history. Every game was close, 
And I'm sure the Yankees' .73 ERA, which is the third lowest of the series history, played a huge role in that. Yeah, the only series that have been lower than that, uh, we've had one that came up before that was the 1905 New York Giants posted a combined ERA of zero, and really that was Christy Mathewson pretty much single-handedly driving that. And we will have the other one ahead of this Yankee performance coming up in about four months. So here is what the Phillies had to say about that, specifically Semenek, when he was asked to recall it. I think we were somewhat awed by the Yankees. You knew, by the way, they carried themselves that they were a class act. They looked like champions. And Jimmy Powers wrote that the Phillies took a quietly efficient, very dignified, and very thorough beating. Constanti drew comparisons to Haas Radbard, who was the pitcher who had Providence to the 1884 championship by pitching almost every game at the end of the season. And Constanti pitched eight innings in game one, warmed up the bullpen in game two, relieved Heinzelman in game three, and pitched nearly eight innings in relief in game four. But as Milton Gross in the New York Post wrote, the Yankees needed pitching and got it. They needed a big hit and Damage produced it. When they needed the big defensive play, someone was there to make it. So the Phillies definitely held their own. They were just outclassed by a much better Yankees team. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those, obviously it's a sweep, but we mentioned what happened in games one through three. This is probably one of, if not the closest sweep in World Series history. There's another World Series I'm way more fond of in which either team could have won the game, but we'll get into that in a year's time. Fair enough. And the Yankees sweeping for the sixth time in 24 years, they definitely did everything they needed to do to win those close games. And then that game four score was a lot closer in the end than it was. It was 5 nothing Yankees for a decent chunk of the game, and then you have those two unearned runs scoring in the bottom of the ninth to make it a three-run final outcome. So I think that's about all we've got for 1950. It's strange that we've had a lot to say about the past few series and not a lot about this one, but I guess we only have four games. You can only say so much. So instead, we'll just look forward to our 1951 episode. We have another Subway series in the Big Apple, and we have a different New York team that we haven't seen for a little bit. And they used to be a mainstay, but not so much recently. And they are only there because of all the most iconic moments in baseball history. More on that next week. And you'll have to tune in next week to find out what that is. So for Lucas Mitzel, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thank you for listening to our 1950 episode. Then there were two, A History of the World Series. Make sure you like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe too. We'll see you next time. <laughs>